Hey guys, welcome to Did You Get That on Film? On this podcast, we deep dive into horror movies, so it is full of explicit content as well as spoilers. Please be advised. Now, let's get to the show. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Did You Get That on Film, where we discuss characters in horrible situations that we would never find ourselves in. I am DP, and I'm always here with my girl, my co-host, somebody who understands that if Michael Myers is coming into town to pack a bag and get the fuck. (laughs) What's up, Ruth? (laughs) Hello. Hello. So, Michael Myers... (laughs) Here we are again. <laughs> Another Halloween movie. Another Halloween movie. We have decided this presumably will be a special episode, right? This is going to be our Halloween on Halloween movie. Yes. Yes, that is the plan. Halloween 2023. So this the movie that we're talking about today is Halloween. This is the 2018 version that starts the new Blumhouse reboot series. This is the start of the trilogy. So you have this Halloween, Halloween kills, Halloween ends. So this is actually the first Halloween sequel since the third movie that actually has John Carpenter involved in it. It's directed by David Gordon Green. It was written also by David Gordon Green, Jeff Fradley, and Danny McBride. And it's funny because essentially all of these people involved are comedy writers, writers and actors. They decided that they were going to reboot this horror franchise. And it was actually, you know, pretty critically successful for them. So good for them. They were just really big fans of the genre fans of this franchise particularly and they actually approached Jason Blum and Carpenter who were looking to reboot the franchise and this is the vision that they liked best so they decided to go with these writers this director and um we'll discuss our feelings on that I'm sure (laughs) as we Go through. (laughs) So just to give people, I guess, a little refresher, the Halloween franchise is pretty complicated. So there's currently 13 Halloween movies, 13 movies kind of within this franchise. So these have been released between 1978 with the original and 2022 with the end of this trilogy, Halloween Ends. It's... 13 movies, but they kind of go across five different timelines, right? Yeah. So you have original Laurie Strode's timeline, which is, there's Halloween 1978, the original, Halloween 2, Halloween H2O, Halloween Resurrection. 
You also have Rob Zombie's Laurie Strode timeline, which is his Halloween remake from t- 2007, um, H2 from 2009, which we have covered on this podcast as well. And then you have this Laurie Strode timeline. So one thing that you have to remember about this movie is that we're not acknowledging any sequels with this movie. So this timeline only includes Halloween 1978, the original, followed by this movie, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends. So that is the that's the timeline that we are going to be sticking to for the purposes of this particular podcast. And you as the listener, if you have only ever seen Halloween 1978, or you've never seen a Halloween movie, and you want to get into this movie, and you feel like you're going to be behind, that's fine. It's just one movie that you have to watch to catch up with. Michael has his own timelines, both with and without Laurie Schrode. And uh, then you have Halloween 3, which is not connected to either of them so yeah uh this movie halloween 2018 picks up 40 years after the original it's essentially a direct sequel to that movie one thing to note that a lot of people i know that i talked to found confusing about this movie is that Laurie Strode is not related to michael in this movie so originally in the John Carpenter's Halloween movies, he did not establish that Lori was Michael's sister until Halloween 2. And this movie, ignoring that movie, gets rid of that, negates that entire connection. So we are moving forward under the assumption that Lori and Michael do not know each other, that he is just a random man that killed her friends, attacked her in 1978, and now 40 years later is returning to Haddonfield So yeah, (laughs) that's a lot of information, but I guess with that knowledge, we can probably just get into it, right? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So we open at the Smith Grove Psychiatric Hospital, and this is where Michael is being held. And this is operating under the assumption that Michael was captured at the end of the 1978 original movie and has been locked up ever since. So he has been in Smith Grove for 40 years at this point. So we learn that there are two true crime podcasters, Aaron and Dana, and they're going to visit Michael um, because he is about to be moved to a new facility. So this is a new, according to his doctor, Dr. Sartain, a inferior facility i think that he is no longer being studied and he's just kind of going to be locked up at this point so they want to get this interview before he's moved because michael has never spoken to anyone in the 40 years that he's been here and these podcasters believe that they are the ones that are going to get michael to (laughs) speak so we are introduced to Dr. Sartain, and he was a student of Dr. Loomis, Michael's original doctor for when he was a child. We learn that Dr. Loomis has passed away, and this is because he's passed away in film, but he's also passed away in real life. Otherwise, I think he may have been in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I wish they had, but rest in peace. He's been gone for a while, so. I know, he's been gone so long. 
So Dr. Sartain makes it very clear that he has been obsessed with Michael for years. Like his entire career has been dedicated to Michael Myers. He is coming on strong. But the podcasters want to get a closer look at Michael and he is outside in this area. It makes for a cool shot as far as cinematography goes. So this is a hospital for the criminally insane, right? So all these people are here for varying reasons. Michael, I think, is probably the most prolific. He's killed several people to this point. But they're in the yard, and they, they can't really get close to each other. They can't really get close to visitors. They're in these squares that are outlined with tape on the ground. And this is kind of indicating the unsafe zone around the patient, Within these squares, there's these big cinder blocks and the psychiatric patients. I don't, I don't want to just label them criminals, but they are chained to these cinder blocks so that they can't move around. They don't have the freedom. Michael is maskless because, of course, he's in the hospital. Like if I have to give them props for something in this movie, I do appreciate that up until Michael does get his mask, because he does eventually get it, they do make it a point to only show maybe like a side profile he's always in shadow or obscured blurred in some way so I do really appreciate that they did that Um, that's a big difference between this particular Halloween and like the Rob Zombie remakes where we get especially in H2 we get a lot of Michael face time and I don't appreciate that and I think that John Carpenter also didn't appreciate that um, I think that was one of his biggest gripes with Michael Myers in the Rob Zombie movies. He took away a lot of the mystique of Michael. He took away kind of the essence of what makes him like just the shape. And he gave him a story and we saw his face a lot. And so I think that these particular writers and the director really tried to honor his wishes by not really showing him a lot. But Aaron, the podcaster, is talking to Michael and he's asking him questions and Michael's giving him absolutely nothing because why <laughs> Because why the fuck would he? You're a podcaster and I haven't spoken in 40 fucking years. <laughs> so we see that Aaron has brought Michael's mask from the original movie, like the, the original William Shatner. And he's really expecting this to elicit a response from Michael. And it, Michael does kind of look at it like out of the corner of his eye, but he's still not saying anything. He's just making a mental note. But it elicits a response from every single patient in the yard besides Michael. The patients are going crazy. And Aaron is frustrated. He's like yelling at Michael and like, like Michael promised him something, like Michael owes him money. You remember the the opening scene of The Lion King? It's a lot like that. Dante, it's actually almost exactly like that because Aaron is holding <laughs> up this mask. <laughs> like it's the fucking crown prince. And the fucking elephants and the zebras and everybody is just going and I'm going crazy. Bascar is in the back watching side eye, like really not feeling it. That's Michael in this situation. So yeah, after Aaron is done like yelling at him, getting nothing. Say something. Say something. Yes. And Michael's like No. 
Like <laughs> was like, absolutely not. I guess I'm just like the audacity of podcasters, right? <laughs> no shade to us, but like you're asking a lot. So we finally get the opening credits and they actually use the original Halloween font and a score that's very much like the original like John Carpenter score. And it's giving all the nostalgia feels that they really try to evoke with this movie because they do. So we get a title screen showing that the podcasters are now driving into Haddonfield and they get to the gate of Lori Strode's house and it's locked down like fucking Fort Knox. Like she clearly doesn't want visitors. She definitely doesn't want them there. And they're trying to like sweet talk their way in. And it isn't until they're like, we'll give you $3,000 that she buzzes them in because Lori is about her money. And I respect that. So we get a look inside of Lori's house and there's tons of cameras, gates, locks. It's giving very much that Lori is still dealing with some post-traumatic stress. Um, she's taken all these precautions, even though it's 40 years later. We get our first look at Lori Strode, aka my girl, Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> who has come back for this movie. And we love that. I loved it. I appreciate any Halloween movie that Jamie Lee Curtis is a part of. You can't have a real sequel without Jamie Lee. Exactly. And they knew that. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. So these podcasters are super insufferable. They showed up. First. They sh- first of all, they showed up unannounced. And I have to assume that it's because Lori screens her phone calls. I feel like they probably did try to call her, but alas... They, they came here, and they at least had the decency to bring $3,000. All, all 20s, crisp. I know. Came straight from the bank. <laughs> but Aaron is being super dismissive of Lori, and because she called Michael the boogeyman when she was 16 fucking years old after he murdered her friends, tried to kill her, tried to kill the children that she was babysitting. And... You know, they're asking Lori, why did Michael come after you? And they really want a glimpse inside his mind. And the way she's looking at them, she's like, what, how the fuck would I know? Why are you asking the victim? And doesn't she say that? I think she's like, ask him. And they're like, well, he hasn't talked in 40 years. She's like, okay, so he has a good idea. Right. Like, damn it. <laughs> damn. I should have I should have taken his lead. But really, she's only humoring them, right? Because she really gives them nothing. So they decide to, for some reason, they start bashing her. They decide to bring up the fact that she has had two failed marriages and she has a really rocky relationship with her daughter, Karen, who was actually removed from her custody when Karen was 12, and a rocky relationship with her granddaughter, Allison, Karen's daughter, because, you know, obviously Karen has some reservations about her daughter being around Lori. And they really want to pry into Lori's daughter being taken away from her. And they have this really asinine exchange that they're like, well, your daughter was taken away at 12. When did you get her back? And she was like, I fucking didn't. I didn't. And you knew that. You knew that before you came here. That's how you have all this information. It's just, so Lori's ready for them to go. She's like, get your shit and get out. But give me my money first. But don't money. <laughs> but don't, yeah, she said, but don't forget don't that. My kid. She's like, $3,000 was the amount to just sit in my fucking living room. 
But before they leave, Aaron decides to suggest to Lori that she sit down and talk to Michael. Again, a person who hasn't talked in 40 (laughs) years. 40. And so he's trying to frame it like it would give her closure. Lori is over it. So once this very annoying scene is over, we move to Karen's household. Karen is Lori's daughter. We meet Karen. We meet her funky ass husband, Ray, and her daughter, Allison. (laughs) We learn that Allison is being inducted into the National Honor Society. And so this is like a big deal for her. And so she wants her grandmother to be there because apparently Allison is trying to make an effort to have a relationship with her grandmother. She asked Karen if she invited her, and Karen just bold-faced lies to Allison. We know this because Allison then explains to her friends, Vicky and Dave, as they're walking the school that she actually called her, and she's the one that told her about the event. And so this scene, the scene with Allison, Vicky, and Dave, this is going to serve as an expedition dump. This is to catch people up on this particular Halloween timeline. In case you came into this movie confused about what the hell is canon and what's not. Allison explains that her mom really tries to keep her away from Lori and that her family gets really crazy during Halloween time, which is understandable, you know. Allison explains that Lori is still traumatized from the events of Halloween 1978 and they defined her life. And Dave asks, wasn't it her brother that murdered the teenagers? Which (laughs) is so annoying. But so Allison just explains that that was a myth that the people of Haddonfield kind of came up with. That that is, in fact, not, not true. So they've gotten us up to speed on this timeline. So Dave is is pretty dismissive of all of this. And Dave doesn't think that having your friends murdered and you almost being murdered, he, he really doesn't think that that's a big deal when you compare it to things that are happening today. And this is going to be some big foreshadowing, right? Because, spoiler, Dave's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it just he, is what it is, okay? He didn't fucking know by a hat. Dave's wearing a hat, you guys. <laughs> this comes up in a lot of our podcasts, but people in horror movies wear these, these the fucking craziest fucking hats, and we're just supposed to continue through the movie like we didn't notice these things. Dave's wearing a dumb fucking hat, okay? So Dave dies. And <laughs> he dies because of the hat. That's my theory. Death by fashion. Yes. <laughs> He's so fucking stupid. (laughs) He's really annoying. We've met no good characters yet. (laughs) Right. Thus far, I'm just... We like Vicky. Yeah, Vicky is the only one because Dave is saying all this stuff about how it's really not a big deal. And Vicky is like, it's called tech, you fuck rag. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So Vicky's like, her grandma was almost murdered. You fuck. Like, even if you're thinking that, don't say it out loud. What the hell is wrong with you? But Dave is the kind of person that explodes people's pumpkins. So I'm just like, why would you do that? Why would like, you okay. do that? But you know, it made me think that like you said earlier, it's written by comedy writers. So there's just a lot of just shit that happens in this movie. It's just like you remember like in this in the scene right before with Karen's husband, he's like, I got peanut butter on my penis. Ah, uh, yeah. It's like Ooh. He did. It's gonna come up later and we, we really didn't touch this, but I, just, I don't like Ray. So 
I just want to get that out of the way. I don't like Ray, Karen's husband, Allison's dad. Not really fond of Karen. (laughs) But one thing to note about Ray is that, so Allison is dating a boy named Cameron in this movie. And we haven't met him yet, but we are about to when they get to school. Cameron is the son of Lonnie. Do you remember his last name? Does it matter? His name is Lonnie Elam, and he is the kid in the original movie that teased Tommy Doll about the boogeyman. So Lonnie right. is um the oh, kid. Oh, and then he knock his pumpkin out of his hand. You know, they you know Lonnie is the one when they're when he's running from the school, and you know, seeing Michael kind of like catches him like, "Watch where you're going, little man." Right. <laughs> so uh, apparently, Lonnie is like this. His family is a whole bunch of bad people so right Lonnie (laughs) when he was younger was a troublemaker so obviously he's a bully for those that have not seen the original which I hope that you have at this point but Tommy Doyle is the little boy that Lori's Lori's babysitting that night so we like Tommy and therefore we're not supposed to like Lonnie right I mean he's like it's really just a throwaway scene of him in there but They bring him up in this movie to say that Cameron is Lonnie's son and Lonnie was a bad apple. So Ray, who was Tommy Doyle's friend when they were younger, they kind of knew Lonnie. They all ran in the same circle, more or less. He's trying to imply that Cameron must also be a bad apple, right? Because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So the dad doesn't like Lonnie. So he just has this preconceived notion of what Cameron is going to be like. And he's, they, I mean, they, they do not shy away from bringing that up every single chance that they can get. Really just to bring up that you, so you can fucking remember who Lonnie is. Exactly. Because it's such a throwaway scene. They gave him the name Lonnie, but like he could have just been bully number one in the credits. <laughs> like we really didn't care who he was in the first one. But, you know, they mentioned him a lot in this one. He does come back in the second one. In the first one, in Dr. Um, Lewis is like, Lonnie, get your ass up get there. Right. I think people like that that scene a lot. I could, really couldn't care any less about Lonnie's entire existence, but I guess they had to have Cameron be related to like get some weight behind Cameron's character. Well, somebody got to be related. Right. They're like, well, remember? Hey, remember? These things happened in the first one. The good one. Remember? You remember? They're like, oh, yeah. Like, somebody could be related. Oh, you want somebody to be related? These people are related. <laughs> Easy. Whew. So we're at Allison's high school now, and we meet Cameron, who seems, you know, sweet enough. And their friend Oscar, who seems annoying. Oh, my God. Talk about a motherfucker. <laughs> I know. So we, we get... This is going to happen a lot in this movie because, like I said, these are not horror writers. These are Halloween franchise fans writing the movie. So this movie itself feels really much like fan fiction. We've we've talked about this before. We're going to use different phrases. The phrase is, it's a love letter to the Halloween community that is displayed through homage of movies past and present. <gasps> <laughs> you broke out of sweat trying to make this PC. <laughs> That's how we're going to frame it so that... So we don't offend anybody? Okay. <laughs> With that being said, they're fans. So they do a lot of callbacks to the original movie because... Not just the original movie. To really like... The franchise. The franchise. The franchise. Yeah. So they, they do a lot of 
callbacks and some of them work better than others. Some of them are a little heavy handed, but this is one of them. So Allison is sitting in class and she looks out the window the same way that Lori did in the 1978 movie. And Lori saw Michael standing outside of her classroom, right? He was watching her. He kind of stalked her throughout the whole opening act of the movie. But in this case, Allison sees Lori standing there watching her, waiting for her. So after class, Allison goes out and she meets Lori, who is her grandmother, remember? And her grandmother gave her the $3,000 that she got from the podcasters because Allison's just gotten into the National Honor Society, which was very sweet. I pray every day that somebody would just wait for me outside of work and give me $3,000. Yes. Another, I guess, like, not callback, but fan service. The teacher in the the class is oh yeah it's a little easter egg it's an easter egg okay so the teacher in the class it's a voice cameo by pj souls who played linda in the linda. original right so remember the the original so little callback remember remember the original remember the original we got it we got you covered so yeah <laughs> so yes yeah, so linda remember is laurie's blonde friend who dies in the original movie so it's a nice little easter egg but it's supposed to be a really heartwarming moment between allison and laurie in this moment laurie is not focusing on michael myers allison takes this time to then remind laurie about michael myers and she reminds her that she lost her family by holding on too much to the past and constantly preparing for catastrophe. And Lori is like, sorry, not sorry. You know, she's like, if I, you know, if I lost my family because I, you know, just tried to prepare my daughter for the perils that are out in the world, you know, then she's like, it was worth it to me. Because Lori was pretty, you know, she's only 16, but she was pretty naive in the first one. It was 1978. She was very much caught off guard by this murderer coming to kill them. And she never wanted her daughter to go through that. I thought it was super weird that Allison even addressed this in this moment. Yeah. So she tells Lori to say goodbye to Michael and to get over it. And Lori's like, Come on, money back. <laughs> she just, she's just like, okay, I don't have anything else to say about that. So Lori goes essentially straight from that conversation to then we get this like little montage scene of her. Not only does she not forget it, she goes home and like target practices. <laughs> with her guns on these mannequins that she has throughout her entire property. And they show her like cleaning her guns. And it's this little montage is really supposed to show you just how obsessed she is with always being prepared, always being ready. It is giving very much PTSD that maybe she should have sought counseling. But at the same time, it's like you can't really blame her for wanting to be prepared because she was so woefully underprepared in the first movie. And she would have died in that movie. Yes, yeah, sure. If Dr. Loomis hadn't gotten there. Yeah. I'm sure she knows that. <laughs> that coat hanger could only do so much. <laughs> so back to the podcasters, because don't forget about them. 
they're in a hotel room and they are poring over Michael Myers files and they find some old tapes of Dr. Loomis and they're getting this voiceover in the movie while we are also as the audience watching them prepare Michael for his transfer. And in this voiceover, Dr. Loomis just makes it very clear that he thinks that Michael should be put to death. He thinks he's pure evil. He believes that he cannot be rehabilitated. He's like, not only should he be put to death, but I don't trust you to do it. So I need to be there and watch him die. I need to know that he is dead. He's like, and then immediately after, it's going the body. Right. He gives them a four-step plan. Yeah. I mean, he's like really clear, unequivocally. So <sighs> Dr. Sartain does not share Dr. Loomis's beliefs. And it's like, well, damn, you were his student. <laughs> what did y'all even talk about? Did you go to class? Apparently not. So during the transfer scene, we get shots of Michael. And this is another callback to the original. And I just, I loved this. We get a shot of Michael. It's a profile shot of his face and you see his eye and it's all milky and fucked up. Like he's clearly blind in this eye. And that's because in the original movie, when Laurie is hiding in the closet, it's like the climactic scene of this movie and Michael's breaking his way into this closet. Laurie finds a coat hanger and she takes it and she stabs him in the eye. Right. And it's such a small scene in that movie. I like that they call back to that. Yeah. I thought that was a really great continuity. Yeah. That part was good. I don't think we've ever seen him with a messed up eye in any other movie. We haven't. That was a super good callback. We also see Dr. Sartain during this time, and he is actually boarding the bus with Michael for this transfer. The guards are kind of like, what the fuck are you doing? But Dr. Sartain's like, no, he's my patient, so I'm going to go. Lori is taking Michael's transfer very hard, and she's waiting outside of the facility, and she is drinking a lot. She actually sees him getting onto the bus. Now, remember, this is that same night. So we know that Allison was inducted into the National Honors Society. She had her ceremony today. So we cut to a restaurant scene, and they're out celebrating. And Cameron is actually meeting Karen and Ray for the first time. And Ray just, I mean, he's really laying it on thick that Cameron's dad is a a fucking loser. (laughs) Right. So he's like telling Cameron about how his dad, Lonnie, sold him some peyote and how that was really great. And Cameron's like, I don't really know what to do with this information. It's everybody's very uncomfortable. Ray is just like oblivious. He's just like a fucking idiot. I just, it's annoying. But we learned that Cameron and Allison are going to go to a Halloween dance and they're going to be dressed as Bonnie and Clyde and everybody's kind of laughing, moving past how awkward Bray is. But during these festivities, Lori comes in and she's not okay. She starts just like pounding the biggest glass of wine I've ever seen served at a restaurant. She kills it. It's not hers. (laughs) It's not hers. It's Ray's. I just think that... I know that Allison wanted her grandma to be there, but it's too much going on, right? Like, it's Cameron meeting her parents for the first time. They're trying to celebrate her National Honor Society, and she wants Lori there, and Michael's being moved today, which 
she had to have explained that because in this moment when she comes in, she just starts crying. She tells them that she saw the shape and that she wanted to kill them. So I know they have to know like he was being transferred and like that's why she's being this way. It was just a lot to to ask of everyone involved. She's being a real fucking downer at the table. And she says that she really wanted to kill him and that she just cannot put the past behind her. And so she just leaves. And it probably would have been better if she hadn't come at all. But Karen takes this as an opportunity to just be a fucking I told you so, bitch. (laughs) And so she's like telling Allison, like, I'm really happy that you got to see Lori this way. Because I guess she just really wants Allison to just like not have anything to do with her. And I'm like, Karen, Karen takes the opportunity to tell Allison, like, I I didn't really tell you about my childhood, but this is why I hate Lori. And so we get these flashbacks and she recalls that she had to learn how to shoot a gun when she was eight and she had to learn how to fight. And they had this like booby trapped basement that she had nightmares about And social services finally came and took her away when she was 12. And she really spent her life trying to get over the paranoia that Lori had instilled in her. And so Karen's relationship with Lori is very, very fractured. We don't really hear a lot about how Allison feels about this. Lori always has one kid. (laughs) They're always super fucked up. (laughs) I know. Lori just can't get it right. Can't get it right. I mean, I guess Josh Hartnett was the most normal. Yeah. But it's so funny because in every movie, the child from the movie before doesn't exist. It's just like she has one child, but it's never the same child. (laughs) No, not even always the same gender, right? right? We just know she had a child. The lore is always Lori has one kid and she fucks them up (laughs) royally. Right. Don't we go back to the podcasters now? <laughs> okay, well, we're not at the podcasters yet because we are seeing Michael's escape. Oh, shit. God damn, this movie long. Keep going. <laughs> it's a very, very long movie. So we cut to the scene of this kid and his father driving in a truck. They stumble across the crashed transport bus that is going from Smith's Grove to whatever this, like, prison that michael's going to and there are mental patients that are just like wandering loose in the streets this man this father who is driving with like a i don't know like 11 12 year old kid in the car he decides that he is going to exit the car to check on everybody and i was like this is like such a couldn't be me moment because it's very obvious what prisoners look like right right like the prison bus looks a certain way they're wearing jumpsuits that look a certain way i I just don't believe that i would ever get out of the car and leave my child in the car but of course this should be no surprise to anybody this is setting up michael's first on-screen kill his these there's going to be a couple of off-screen one on-screen kill in this scene so the kid decides to do the smart thing and call 911 and he's 
this is why you shouldn't have asked this child to do this because he really can't describe where they are, right? He's like, I'm, I'm on the road, me and my dad were driving and there's a bus and it's crashed. And he's not really giving them the information that would let them know like, okay, this is a bus of crashed inmates. Right. So he decides to get out of the car to go find his dad because I can only assume that the 911 operator is like, where's the adult in this situation? <laughs> but he finds initially this on the ground, this bloodied, very injured police officer who tells him to run. Okay, this is scary. He doesn't run. He interprets that as like, let me then board this prison bus where I guess he's looking for his father, but he accidentally stumbles upon Dr. Sartain, who is just like sitting there, right? So that should be like, I think our first clue. Dr. Sartain's not calling 911. He's not offering aid. He's just sitting on this bus. I just thought, I just thought about that. Yeah, he was just. He was just sitting there. Waiting to be discovered. Right. And then I guess he was going to put on an act once he was discovered. But yeah, the way he's just sitting there. So he yells at the kid, don't shoot. <laughs> but it scares the kid who obviously shoots him. And then the, the kid's like, oh, fuck. So he that's when he decides to run back and get back into his car. He did not find his father. But of course, when he gets back into the car, Michael is already in there. He's in the back. And he, I guess, strangles him slash crushed his eye bone because you hear it. But this was kind of a little callback the way that Annie died in the first one. So the dad is, of course, killed off screen because there was no way that either of them was going to survive this. So now we get our first look at Deputy Frank Hawkins. And so he's playing pinball at a gas station. Drinking the icy. Just hanging out with black people, which will always keep you safe in a situation <laughs> like this, right? Frank is supposed to be the officer that arrested Michael in 1978. He gets the call about this crashed bus. When he arrives, he's seeing the dead cops. He's seen the, he sees the dad from earlier who is like really fucked up. Crazy fucked up. His neck is... It looks weird, huh? It looks like avant-garde. Or- <laughs> his neck looks like four or five inches longer than it should be. It's like he pulled his neck like a Stretch Armstrong doll. Like it's... Right. It's weird. It's insane. And it's tilted backwards. It's very bizarre, but he's clearly dead. Yeah. And so Deputy Hawkins finds Dr. Sartain shot and Dr. Sartain asks, has he escaped? And Deputy Hawkins is like, who? Then it cuts. I assume that Dr. Sartain passed out because he is bleeding out at this point. And it's his own goddamn fault. So now we cut to the next morning and we get some on-screen text. And now this is Halloween day. So this is October 31st. So this is where... Bitches die. Right. We cut to Haddonfield Cemetery, which is also a thing. If you have a Halloween movie, remake, reboot, anything like that, Judith Myers can't rest in peace, okay? (laughs) So they go to Haddonfield Cemetery where Judith Myers is buried, where... Remember the podcasters? We're back with them. They've decided they're going to record at Juth Meyer's grave, which I think is like mad weird, right? Right. So they're going to walk through the events of the night that Michael killed her when he was six years old. 
They replay the scene from the opening of the original movie through Michael's eyes where he walks up behind Judith. She's sitting, brushing her hair, topless, in her mirror, and he stabs her and he kills her. This is his older sister when he was only six. They kind of go through explaining all of this, you know, giving the rundown. The woman, the caretaker of this cemetery is like, bro, what the fuck? She's just like standing there super awkwardly because she's like, this shit is mad weird. I'm tired of people coming to this fucking cemetery for this shit. She's just like, who is Judith Myers anyway? And I'm like, well, girl, Google is free. But, you know, she's over it because Judith Myers is apparently a hot spot in the cemetery. But we as the audience, we see that Michael is actually in the cemetery. So he's like in the distance. He's still in that white jumpsuit. And we see him kind of from afar with his face is obscured by like a tree. But he's watching the podcasters. He has found them in Haddonfield. So we cut to the hospital and Dr. Sartain is being treated. And here we have Deputy Hawkins and Sheriff Omar Barker and Sheriff Barker's hat, (laughs) which is a constant companion. (laughs) It never leaves his side this entire trilogy. This motherfucker in a hat. (laughs) If you see Omar Barker, he is in a fucking hat. You better believe that. And it's an aggressive cowboy hat. So don't be surprised when you see it. It's aggressive. But in this scene, Dr. Sartain is like out. He's still like kind of out cold. But Hawkins is actually going through the the manifest, the patient list of who was on the bus. And he makes the little comment that it was a lot of low-level offenders for the most part. Most of them have been caught. But Michael Myers was on that bus and he has not been caught. Okay. So he's gone. And so Deputy Hawkins is very aware of how serious this situation is. And he knows that like shit is about to get real. It's Halloween day. Omar Barker's kind of like, oh well, you know, like, what the fuck (laughs) am I supposed to do about it? Because Michael's out, it is Halloween, but at the same time, it's like, I guess it's a little understandable. It has been 40 years, right? Like, Michael's like 60, like one? Michael is 61. Like, he was like 21 when he was in the first one. If you're thinking that a 61-year-old cannot do a lot of damage, you're mistaken. Because we cut to the gas station where the podcasters are filling up. And we actually see, if you're paying attention enough, you actually see Michael pull up to the gas station and he's in a car that he stole from the kid and his dad that he killed earlier. So we get a shot as the podcasters are getting out of the car. Aaron is pumping the gas and Dana has to like poop, I guess. (laughs) So she's like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. We get a shot of Michael's mask and it is in the trunk of the podcaster's car And so while she's like putting stuff in the trunk, we actually get a glimpse of Michael and he is walking into the gas station and he is still in this white institution jumpsuit. Nobody's really noticing though. The podcasters sure don't. And we get a shot of a van. There's a woman sitting in the van. And this is actually a callback as well, right? It's it's several callbacks. It's a lot going on. Right, it's a lot going on because the name on the van is Resurrection Church, right? So that's like Halloween Resurrection. We're at the gas station, like part four, and the mm-hmm. mechanic. 
And then also, um, what's her name? I mean, Lori. What's this girl's name? Is Allison? Annie? Who the hell is the podcaster? Dana. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, just, I ain't got to remember her name. It really doesn't matter. Which is over anyway. Um, So she's in the stall, like, part seven. Right. Which I I really like in Halloween H2O. I liked the bathroom scene in that one too. But this one takes the bathroom scene and like is on steroids. Because as Dana is going inside, she's asking the gas station attendant, you know, like, can I, where's the bathroom? Let me get the key. She doesn't notice. The attendant doesn't notice. But we as the audience, if you're being astute enough, through the window to the garage where the mechanics are, you can actually see Michael beating a man to death just straight up with his bare fucking hands. It's really um intense. <laughs> it's intense. He's wailing on this man, but it's not really drawing her attention at all. And nobody's outside screaming. It's just he's beating this man to death. So Dana goes into the bathroom and she's sitting on the toilet in this fucking nasty ass bathroom. But as she's using the bathroom, we see Michael come in and he's in a new fit. This is explaining to us where he gets this mechanics jumpsuit. He's in a new fit, but it's really the same old me. I know, right? It's like, <laughs> it's his go-to. It's his Sunday fit. He's always pulling this one out. He's like, Let me, I'm going to take it old school for you guys. I got the mechanics fit on deck. He got his dicky fit on. Oh, Lord. He ready? He's in the dicky fit in the, in the tip. <laughs> he like, look, I'm about to stun these hoes. Yeah, I'm about to kill him in this one. <laughs> really. <laughs> so Michael walks in, in the fit, and... He starts like pushing on the doors to the stalls and Dana is like hearing him do this and she's just like pooping. But we as the audience know this is definitely a a Molly, you endanger girls situation because he gets to the stall that she is in. <sighs> Meanwhile, they're cutting back to Aaron, who's just trying to pay for his gas and he discovers the dead gas station attendant. He walks around and he sees that the gas station attendant's jaw is, like, placed next to his body, basically. Like, he, like I guess Michael just killed this guy by like jerking his jaw off. Yeah, it was weird. It was very weird. It was pretty brutal. But he finds this dead gas station attendant, jaw disconnected. And he finds the very dead, half-naked mechanic, who we know Michael got his suit from. And so... We're like, oh shit, you know, things are serious. If you didn't know up until this point. And so we cut back to Dana, who is still sitting on this dirty ass toilet. And Michael is at her door and he tries to shake it to get in there. And she's like, occupied. And so Michael decides to take the handful of teeth that he's holding like a fucking psycho that he just ripped out of the gas station attendant's mouth. And he puts his hand over the stall door. And he just starts dropping the gas station attendant's teeth all over the floor in front of Dana. And she rightfully freaks out. And I actually really liked that scene. I thought it was very effectively creepy. This happens a lot in the movie. And at first I kind of got irritated when little things like this happen. But... I just kind of remember, this is very on brand for Michael, right? Like, Michael does 
whole weird shit. He do he just, like yeah. weird asshole shit. That's weird. That's not just that it's violent and it's murderous. Like it's strange. Like why did you do that? Right, but he does a lot of little. It's like hijinksy little stuff that like a kid might do. Because like think okay, he has these teeth and he drops them over. It's really scary for her, you know, like she's freaked out as it would be for anyone, right? But it's like, you didn't have to do that, Michael. But then it's like, when you think about in the first one, remember when he put that sheet on and he went up to scare Linda? He put those glasses on over that sheet? <laughs> like, Michael. Yeah, like, fucking asshole. Yeah, like, why did you do that? That's not above him to just do some silly shit. He just thinks that certain things are funny, I guess. Well... She's freaking out. And so now he's trying to pry the stall door open. Dana tries to crawl underneath to a different stall, but she's not fucking moving fast enough. And Michael just very, very casually opens the stall door next to her and he catches her by her ankles. And this is setting up, obviously, the second and third on-screen kills. So Aaron comes in because he knows that shit has gotten real. He busts in and he sees Michael and he recognizes him immediately. Michael. <laughs> He's Michael. And he tries to hit him with a crowbar. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you got to do something, right? Shoot him. He, he, they're just podcasters. They should have used that $3,000 they gave to Lori and invested in a weapon, but they didn't. He tries to hit Michael. Michael fucks him up. He kills him by repeatedly slamming him into the walls, the stall door. Like he's he's ragdolling him in this bathroom, beating him to death essentially. And so while he's over in a corner, bloodied and broken, he's kind of, you know, holding on to life, but it gives him the opportunity to watch Michael lift Dana up by her throat. And he's just choking her. Her feet are dangling off the ground and it like breaks her hyoid bone and they're done. The podcasters are dead. We are no longer forced to see them in this film. So he kills them and then he immediately goes to their car to get what he came for. He opens the trunk, he sees his mask and we get this really good shot. I thought this was a really well done shot of him holding the mask up. He's like looking at it and then he puts it on. And this is, I guess, the end of Act One of the movie, right? It feels like it. It feels like it. Right. Because like, now he has his mask, so now... He has his mask and his fit. He's ready. He's ready. He's ready. That was all he had to do to like, prepare for Halloween night. And now he's ready to like, wreak havoc on Haddonfield. So things start moving from here. Here. Very quickly. Yes. So we cut to Lori's house and she's hearing on the news that the bus that was transporting Michael has crashed and she already knows what time it is, right? So she is going into like lockdown mode. She's locking stuff up. She's packing a lot of bullets. We get the shot of her like kitchen island that moves and reveals her hidden basement that we saw in Karen's flashback of how horrible her childhood was. Um, and then we cut to Karen's house and Karen doesn't care, right? Like Karen feels nothing at this moment. Uh, we find her getting into her house and her back door is like wide open. And I just, I hate this scene because 
her back door is like wide open and she's like calling out for Ray. She's calling out for Allison. Nobody's coming. And it's like the scene, they set it up for you as the audience to feel kind of like eerie about it because you're like, oh my God, is it Michael? Is Michael already here? Right. And so she doesn't close the door because she's, I guess, refusing to believe that anything bad could happen in the world. Right. So Ray comes in and he's like, oh, hey, it's me. And so she's like, oh, good. But she's like, no, wait, something's still off. And so surprise, it's Lori who's been lurking inside her house. And she is like, if I was a fucking murderer, you'd be dead already. And she's right. She just starts calling out how ill-prepared Karen is for danger. And she's not wrong. You know, Karen doesn't have an alarm system. She doesn't have any guns. Her back door is wide open. And so she tells Karen that the bus crashed. And Karen is an idiot. And she doesn't care. Ray's a fucking idiot. And he's just like, I can defend my family. I know karate. And it's just like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I know in that moment, Lori was like, shoot him, just shoot him. Because Lori pulls a gun on him, right? So Lori's like, not <laughs> trying to hear any of this shit. Fucking tired of him. Shit. Shut the fuck up. We're all tired of him at this point, right? So Ray is just so fucking annoying. And Karen tells Lori, she's like, the world is not a dark place and it's full of love. And she's like, nothing you can say can convince me otherwise. What's the fucking news, you dumb bitch? God damn. Right. I'm like, how disconnected are you from the world? He escaped on this bus. We know that Michael has escaped. But we also know, like, people died there. Like, it's not just that the bus crashed. We know people were murdered at that scene. She's really shitting on Lori. And it's like, well, you're not being realistic, right? Right. You're a stupid, 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 stupid girl. Right, because even if it wasn't Michael that escaped, which he did. Because they can't find him. And they can't find him. Even if it wasn't him who escaped, it could have been anybody. Somebody killed those people. Right. So somebody is on the loose near Haddonfield. Killing people. Yeah, you just have your back door propped open. You have no survival skills right like just think think about it you stupid bitch Lori's like i can't believe i raised this girl for 12 years i know Lori's never been more disappointed in her whole life in anyone <laughs> right so the next shot we get is hawkins and he's at the gas station at this like bloodbath that michael has left behind and we see that Lori is there, too, because Lori has a police scanner. <laughs> so if you thought she didn't, you don't know Lori Strode. And they know that Michael did this, right? They're not just assuming because they actually find the Smith's Grove white uh, jumpsuit. He's taken it off because he had, to, <laughs> he had to put on his new fit, right? He didn't need that anymore. Yeah. And so... This is where Hawkins tells the story to Sheriff Barker that he was actually there the night that Michael was caught in 1978. And Hawkins actually stopped Loomis from shooting and killing Michael. And so I think that he carries a lot of guilt for that. Bad choices all around. It was a bad choice. And so Hawkins is kind of on the same wavelength as like Lori and Dr. Loomis. Like this bitch needs to die, right? Like there isn't any, look what he did to that man's jaw. 
It's crazy. <laughs> he he has to go. So flash forward to that night and Halloween is in full swing. There's children everywhere. They never warn people in in Halloween movies. They let you go on about your night and get killed, which is exactly what happens here. So we get this is another callback to the original movie. We see the little kid running and he runs straight into Michael. And the creepy score starts to play. Like, sorry, mister. Right. And Michael's just like standing there looking at him. Like, these children still got no respect. God damn. I know. <laughs> He's like, they never fucking learn in this town. So we get, this is another kind of on-screen, but partially off-screen kill. Michael is kind of in like a frenzy now, right? So he wanders into this open shed and he grabs a hammer And he makes his way into this woman's house. We see her walking through her open kitchen door. And then we see Michael go in through the kitchen door. And she gasps. And then we hear him beating her to death with this hammer that he found. And we see her dead on the kitchen table. And Michael drops the hammer and he picks up this big ass fucking knife. And so, you know, he's like, oh, finally quality i know he's like it's really hard to find good quality at the gas station so then we hear a baby crying this woman had a baby which is sad and michael walks up to it and he kind of pauses for a second like looks at the baby and then like walks out the front door and i think that they were i think that they wanted the audience to kind of have a little moment of panic like is michael gonna kill this fucking baby he doesn't kill the baby he just walks out As he's walking down the street, we get this shot of a couple and they're dressed as a doctor and a nurse, this black couple. And the nurse sees Michael and she's like a little uneasy about him. But her husband's like, we're fucking late for this party. And she's like, well, we gotta go. Because he looks weird, right? He looks weird. He looks out of place. And he's like staring at her. You think he's stink? Yes. Well... I have to assume that he probably is like musty, right? He's probably worked up a sweat beating these people to death. I don't think that they, I have to assume that they don't give him deodorant and stuff at Smith's Grove. Oh. I know, but it's like, would they eat it? (laughs) I don't know. I just can't imagine that in this mental institution, they give them a lot. So he's probably musty. Mm-hmm. But he's not, we know he's not like totally dirty because it has only been one day. Right. Right. And he was clean at the institution. But she, the way he's looking at her, I know I'd be alarmed, but they're late for this party and just we'll see more of them in the next one. Y'all will see more of them. <laughs> right. I thought it was kind of cool that they gave us a little sneak peek of them in this one and they bring them back for the second one. Yeah. But now we're getting Michael's fourth on-screen kill. So he probably would have killed that nurse costume woman, but she left. So he's like, well, I guess I'll kill this bitch instead. He approaches another house. And I thought that the scene was shot pretty cool. We see a woman through like a big bay window in the front of her house. And she's on her phone. And we hear her conversation on the phone. And I guess she's learning about... I don't know on the phone if they're telling them that Michael Myers has escaped. They're saying or they just escaped mental patients. Right. 
But I don't. Did they mention that Michael was one of them? I don't think probably so. not. Probably not. Because that would cause a frenzy. Maybe I don't know. Karen doesn't care. But either way, people are escaped, and so she's like, she's heard this on the news. She's talking to a friend that's heard it, so she's like, yeah, I'm gonna lock my doors and stuff. And we see Michael, like he sees her, and he's like, "Ooh, I'm gonna go around the back. I bet it's unlocked." It's unlocked. Okay. So Michael in this, the camera never leaves this big bay window in the front of her house. And we see her coming to look through the window and Michael comes up behind her just as she's closing her blinds. Michael walks up and he grabs her by her hair. He like slams her head one time and then he just like stabs her through the back of the neck and you see the tip of the knife come through the front. And I was like, okay, that's, a, that's effective. <laughs> Stuff like this, we've discussed before that I think maybe with like Halloween 2009, I feel like uh, sometimes directors in movies like this, the writers and the directors, I think sometimes they kind of confuse a lot of kills with being scary. And I don't think that that is the case. I think putting in that scene of him beating that woman to death and then stealing that knife. I thought that that was a good kill. Like he needed to get the knife. I thought that that was a good scene. Breaking into this woman's house for no reason doesn't really jive with Michael necessarily. It's like in the first movie in the 1978 version He sees Lori and he kind of stalks her all day. And there's something about Lori that he, he's like, I'm going to kill her. Right. And then she has these friends that are in the house. I feel like killing them was like a, almost like a means to an end. Like, I feel like his goal that night was to kill Lori. I just didn't feel like this kill was necessary and it was very quick and it added nothing to the story. Besides, we should have him kill somebody because more kills equals a better movie. Right. I feel like it's actually just the opposite. I feel like you don't need kills, a lot of kills. Like in Scream, there's not a lot of kills at all. Like the only way that I can reason with myself about it is that Michael hasn't been able to kill for 40 years and he's really frenzied. And so that's why he's just like killing everybody that he comes across. Yeah, it was it. It was just I don't know, it, Look, I, and it wasn't a particularly good kill. It, no, it's like that scene in the second movie where he goes to the neighbor's house. He doesn't kill the neighbors, but then he goes next door and kills that girl. So it's just like that scene, right? It's just another callback. That's all. Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> well, so we cut to the Halloween party that Allison and Cameron are at. And they're wearing their little gender-bent Bonnie and Clyde costumes. And Allison gets a call from Vicky, who's babysitting the only kid in a horror movie that I've ever been able to stand, Julian. Like, Julian is giving very much Ricky vibes. Oh, like, who, we, camp, who right? we fucking love, man. We love, we love Ricky. Ricky. Because I love a child that has a fouler mouth than I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love Julian. So as she's on the phone with Vicky, she's getting some calls from Lori, who's presumably trying to tell her it is not safe. Michael has escaped because nobody in this movie watches the fucking news except Lori. 
and this woman who's been murdered. Um, but she ignores her phone calls, and it's very rude. But Vicky invites Allison and Cameron over to the house where she's babysitting to hang out with her and Dave. We also learn that Julian is like a tattletale and a freak. Because he's like, you can't invite people over here, bitch. This is not your house. I'm going to tattle. And she's like, if you tell, I'm going to tell your mom about your search history on your computer. And he's like, all right, bet. I won't tell. Because <laughs> I don't know what Julian is watching. <laughs> that shit must be gross. <laughs> well, he's like nine or ten. So it's kind of like, no matter what it is, it's like, boy, take your ass outside. Right, exactly. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> right. And so we get this really heartwarming scene between Julian and Vicky, and they have like a really close relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Julian, the kid that Vicky's babysitting, and it, it's really nice. So we cut back to the dance, and Allison is going to find Cameron, and she sees him kissing this girl in this like fucking piss poor slutty tiger costume. And she's, like, painted. It's head Phil. What do you expect? Well, he's kissing her. And, like, Allison is literally watching this happen. And then Cameron, who is a fuckboy, he's basically like, well, what are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes? <laughs> your lying eyes? Because he's like, that didn't happen. She, she was just whispering in my ear. And Allison's like... Bye, dude. Right. Like, do I look stupid to you? And so she keeps getting these calls and, you know, I'm sure Lori is blowing her phone up. And so not only is Cameron a piece of shit cheater, a gaslighter, but then he also takes her phone and puts it in a bowl of like, we haven't been able to decide whether this was pudding or nacho cheese. I think it's nacho cheese. Because who the hell eats pudding? <laughs> but I'm like, what kind of thing is that to serve nacho cheese in? Because it's like you just get the nacho cheese. They're not like, you know, they don't think like how we're probably thinking. Like we used to a Bunsen burner, you know, like keep, keep that cheese hot. Uh, it's in like a fucking punch bowl. It's a punch bowl. It's just like, oh, no, man, these these, these are kids. They just they'll, they'll eat anything. And it's like, if I go to a party and the cheese ain't hot, I'm talking about you all day. Right. <laughs> but he puts her phone in that. And I would have been so fucking mad. Do you know how expensive phones are? And y'all are in high school. Her phone is continually ringing. And he's like, well, do you want to get that or should I? He's being such an asshole to her. And it's like, bitch, you're the one that's cheating. You're the one that just destroyed my property. iPhones are like over $1,000. This came out of nowhere, though. It came out of nowhere. Oh, and to explain that, so I guess... Allison finds that he has a flask on him. And so the presumption is that, okay, Cameron has been drinking and he's like a piece of shit when he drinks because his dad is like Lonnie, who was like a piece of shit when he drinks, I guess. That was so weird. It was so unnecessary. A really heavy handed way to push that in there. But she leaves her phone and I'm like, everybody in this scene is stupid because I would never leave my shit. In a bowl of fucking nacho nacho cheese. cheese. Cold nacho cheese. Leave my fucking phone. Grab that shit. Spit in his face and then leave. But no, she leaves her fucking phone behind. She leaves her phone behind. And when we cut to, 
You think we were cut to Michael looking in the background, but no, we got fucking Oscar, Oscar old, old Ebony from fucking Players Club plotting ass. He's eating this up. Uh, Oscar, who is fucking Cameron's friend. That's Cameron's friend. It's Cameron's friend, right? It'd be your own people, though. Yes. Your replacement is always closer than you think. That's Oscar, <laughs> right? So Oscar is obviously going to take advantage of the situation, right? And shame yep. on him. So while all of this is happening, we see that Lori is on the hunt for Michael, right? She's in the car reckless, driving crazy. I'm sure she's been drinking. She's listening to her police scanner. <laughs> I'm sure she's been drinking. I'm sure she has. And so the tension is really building here, right? And we're going back to see Vicky. And we get this scene of her that I thought was like super unnecessary. She's washing a knife that has to be like 15 inches long. It's such a comically huge restaurant grade (laughs) ass knife. But they make it a point of showing her like washing this knife by hand. She puts it in the drying rack and it's at this time that Dave arrives. I th- but I think it's like that because, you know, like in the first movie, people are always like, how did he get Bob's body to stay on the wall with a knife? That's not real. You know, people just fucking annoying. Just say me. anything. Just won't shut the fuck up. Anyway, so I think it was like that. And because of that. Because, spoiler alert, people, Dave dies. Oh, we spoiled that a long time we ago. We want everybody to know that. We don't give a fuck. So it's kind of like that. But yes, so Dave's death, yeah, is like a callback to Bob's from the first one where he pins him to the wall with a knife. And then I think people had other complaints because Bob gets stuck through the stomach, right? Like right under the sternum and he kind of hangs there. Oh my God. They really have that complaint? Well, they were like, it's too thick. Do people have that complaint or is that one of those things where like they're fans and they were like, well, I always thought this. Oh, no, yeah, right, right. Because we talked about that with Rob Zombie. It's always like this thing where like, oh, I didn't like this, so I changed it. But other people probably like didn't even care. Yeah, you're right. It has to be people that really watch it a lot, and then they make critiques of it. Like, if, if you're just seeing the movie for the first time, like, I could see people might be like, well, would that be enough to hold him up? And might that might be all that they think about it. But people that watch it over and over again, like us, might be like, well or just like fuck he's dead like goddamn. <laughs> i know well in this one michael pins him through his neck and so that's a lot more feasible right that the knife would be able to penetrate through the neck i'm so tired of seeing that fucking kill because <laughs> <laughs> we saw that with dana is what i'm saying she dies the same way she died well she gets her neck snap, but you know it's that cut to her feet the dangling the the, the dangling of the feet it's the yeah. fucking same thing over and over again they really want to drive home. Michael is big and he's really fucking strong. So he can like pick you up off your feet. So while Vicky and Dave are making out, Vicky hears a noise and she asks Dave to go check it out. And before he can make it upstairs, Julian comes crashing down the stairs and he tells them that he saw the boogeyman and he has a fucked up face and that he was watching him from the hallway. And this kid is like, he's nine But as scared as he is, like, I get it. Kids get scared of stuff. But, like, if a kid that's that old that's able to string together this complicated slew of curse words and that also watches porn, 
I would believe him. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, okay, well, he clearly knows a thing or two, right? They just do not believe him. Like, they're just like, no, you didn't see that. And so Vicky's like, come on, Julian, I'll check it out. And Julian's like, send <laughs> So she goes up and she checks the rooms for him. And she's like, oh, your room is empty. I, I checked it. He's like, she's like, I checked the whole place. And it's like, but you just But didn't. you didn't. You didn't check the whole and place, And why you lied you? about that? Why you lied? Why you lied? Because I think she just didn't believe him. So she didn't even try. But then I'm like, why would he lie? In my mind, Dave should have come with you. And y'all, like, if you're really going to check, like, if you don't believe him, he should have come with you. And then y'all all checked all the rooms, right? Like, you checked Julian's room, cursory. And then you're like, oh, there's no intruder. And then that's just it. Like, well, what if he's in the fucking parents' room? Like, you have no idea where this fucking intruder is. I'm about to go. Always. I know. Well, as, so- as soon as Julian said that, I would have been like, let's get out of here. Because you heard something too, you dumb bitch. You just heard something. Julian is terrified. He didn't just say, I think I saw a guy. He's like, no, there was a guy with a fucked up face, which he's, you know, he's not articulating it well, but it's a man in a mask in your house, you know? Oh, we like, gotta go. We gotta get that. Yeah, let's go. Here. There's no harm in calling the police or at least asking a neighbor. So she's like, check the whole thing. Julian's like, okay. He allows her to lull him back into comfort. They're in the bed and Julian asks her, well, can you check the closet before you go? Which Vicky, if you'd done a proper job the first time, we wouldn't be in this situation. She's like, sure. So this is setting up his fifth on-screen kill. I didn't want anybody to be confused. Vicky does not make it out of this alive. Life. So she, she goes up to the closet door and I did, I liked this scene. She gets to the closet and she tries to push it closed and it kind of bounces back open. She tries it again. And so she just opens it and Michael is just fucking there. And so he slashes her hand and Julian says, Oh, oh shit. shit. And he is gone. He's a ghost. He's out of there. He's like, come on, Vicky. He's like, I'll get help. Stop. And so Vicky, she starts to run too, but she slips on the floor because she's in her like socked feet. And unlike Baby in House of a Thousand Corpses, she can't bounce up quick because Baby would have been back Ooh. up and gone. Never <laughs> let them get you on the ground. Baby learned that young. Yeah. Vicky falls and Michael grabs her and he starts like, to drag no! her back in the room. I know she's like, run, Julian. And Julian's like, you don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> and he's like, Dave. And she's like, don't go up there. <laughs> yeah, so Dave decides that he's going to be a hero. And Julian's like, you're going to fucking die. Julian is so gone. Julian's like, I'll send help. <laughs> He's he, Julian's where I would be out of this fucking house. And so we see Dave grab this big ass fucking knife. Vicky is is killed. He stabs Vicky to death. And we don't see him kill Dave, but come on. Right. Like I I shouldn't even have to explain this to you guys. Dave fucking dies. I can't believe that Dave bought a knife to <laughs> he got killed, but he bought it for himself. He, like, gave Michael the fucking... That's how dumb Dave is. He's so fucking stupid. I would have never went upstairs. You would have been a goner. 
I wouldn't, but that's the thing. I don't even think that I would want you to, right? Because even when Vicky's dying, she's like, run, Julian. And so I was like, good for Vicky. She wasn't like, help me. Because what the fuck can anybody do? Look at this fucking guy. He's huge. So Lori and Deputy Hawkins are both frantically driving around looking for Michael when the call comes over the police scanner about a domestic disturbance. And just instinctively, they both know this must be Michael, right? Because it's really the only call that's come over the radio tonight. So as they're pulling up, we get, this is another Easter egg shot. We get these shots of some trick-or-treaters and it's a call back to those, like the silver shamrock mask from Halloween three, those mm. three masks. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a well done Easter egg. I thought I like they did a good one. job with that one. So Hawkins arrives at the house first and he enters. Lori arrives shor- shortly after and she starts screaming like a lunatic telling everybody to get, get out, get out of here, get inside. <laughs> and they're really running just because she's crazy. They she has a, well, she has a gun too. She's <laughs> <laughs> gun around. She's telling people to get out of here. Like parents are grabbing their children and like running away. <laughs> Cause they're like, this bitch is crazy. And she's not wrong, but she's, she's coming on very strong. Right. Right. People are scared. So inside the house, Deputy Hawkins, he discovers Vicky's body. And Michael, this is one of those, like, another little silly fucking hijinksy things that he does. He has Vicky's body propped up in a chair. And he put a sheet over her. And he, like, cut out the eyes to make it look like a ghost. And I'm like, why the fuck would he do that? Why would he take the time to do that? And then he threw... The jangle in the in the fish in the fish tank. It's like whatever. He's just doing shit just to do it. Like he's just he's like such a fucking asshole. He is an asshole. So Michael is standing in another room, and Lori can actually see him from outside of the house, and she looks up. And I know this has to be very scary for her, right? Like if you just think about the scene as if it was really happening. He is in the jumpsuit. He has the mask. This is taking her straight back to 1978, right? He looks exactly the same that he did. It is it is like the original mask and everything. So she is shook and she's not really thinking straight, right? Because she just decides to like <laughs> she says like shoot up through the window of the house. And it doesn't hit Michael, obviously. He's looking at her through a mirror, which had she not been so freaked out, maybe she could have guessed that. But Michael's like, oh, okay, bitch. He sees her too, and he beelines it for Lori, walks straight past Deputy Hawkins. Deputy Hawkins like, hey, wait, you know, and he tries to like shoot at him. Michael's like tunnel vision. He's like going to get this bitch. <laughs> right, he's booking it. And so- Hawkins runs down the stairs and this is where he discovers Dave's body, right? And Dave is mounted to the wall with the knife, the the knife that he gave Michael to kill him with. This is what he's mounted to the wall with. With his tattoo to commemorate the night that him and Vicky were going to dry hump, but actually it's the day they fucking died. (laughs) It's the day that they were both murdered. So he is like 1031, 18, 18 on his fucking arm and they were probably giddy 
filming this scene. It's such a stupid fucking tattoo. It looks like a fucking prison tattoo. It looks exactly like a prison tattoo. I was like, the placement is bad. It looks like thick, bad ink. Like, where did you, did you, he looks like he made $20 in somebody's kitchen to get this fucking tattoo. But Dave's mounted to the wall with the knife through his neck. So this is obviously the callback to Bob from the first movie. So once they're outside, Michael is walking towards Lori and she shoots him and it does hit him. Yeah. But he doesn't... Doesn't stop. <laughs> no, yeah. It, hit, it hits him in the jaw, right? I got a neck or something, right? Yeah, something in that area. And he he doesn't go down. But he does leave, right? So he gets the fuck out of there. So Sheriff Barker and Dr. Sartain arrive to the scene because at this point, you know, everybody's like aware that this is a Michael incident. And Dr. Sartain gives them some insight about how the bus crash occurred. <laughs> This bitch. He had had enough time to come up with a little story. Right. That whole time that he was like supposedly like in a coma, he was just like, damn, what am I going to say? I need to really think about this. It didn't go the way he thought it was going to go. So he also explains that Michael's no longer dormant and that he is going to keep killing until he's stopped. So they have to catch him. So Sheriff Barker thinks that Dr. Sartain can help catch Michael. And so he's like, Hawkins, you know, like, let him help you. Hawkins is like, I don't fucking think so. But I guess he doesn't have a choice because we're stuck with Dr. Sartain for quite some time now. Lori really doesn't give a fuck who does what. She's just like, y'all need to do something. <laughs> She's like, y'all are standing around fucking circle jerking. Y'all need to start moving. Circle jerking. <laughs> right. And so this is where Dr. Sartain sees her for the first time. And he comes on very strong. And she's creeped out too because she's like, who are you? Because at this point, she's only ever met Dr. Loomis, right? Right. He's introducing himself and he's just showing just how obsessed he is with like Michael, her, this whole event. And Lori tells Hawkins that she's prayed every night that Michael would escape so she could kill him. And Hawkins is like, bitch, why the fuck would you do that? Why didn't you just prepare him to die? I know in that moment he wanted to slap her around. Just give her a good old, a good old two piece in the biscuit. Right, because look, <laughs> now look at where we are. So in case you forgot uh, the fact that Oscar was about to prey on Allison, we cut back to them and Oscar and Allison are walking down the street and Allison is lamenting Cameron, her boyfriend, to Oscar, who's supposed to be her and Cameron's friend. But Oscar is like shooting his shot by doing like the nice guy routine. Allison, you're the prettiest girl in school and there's some guys that appreciate that and that's their laws. It's like that. That was him. That was him. Yeah, that was him verbatim. Like, that could have been a sound clip from the movie. (laughs) (laughs) So nobody can reach Allison, right? Because she has left her phone in this bowl of, like, nachos. And so Oscar convinces her that he knows a shortcut. And so he gets her to, like, hop the fence into somebody's house. And this was really just, like, a poor attempt to get her somewhere where he could make the moves on her. And so he tries to kiss her, and she calls him pathetic. And he is pathetic, right? It's just... She was like, oh, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) She was like, oh, she was like, oh, what the fuck? (laughs) She 
basically and his feelings are so hurt like i think he starts crying she's like i'm getting the fuck out of here she hops the fence and she's leaving because yes girl go home just fucking get home you've had a hell of a night up until this point and so he's like being pathetic on the ground in these random people's backyards and so this is setting up his sixth on-screen kill right because oscar's too fucking pathetic to live so as he's on the ground michael comes out from behind a tree and this scene is set up pretty cool because it's a it's a scene where they have like motion sensor lights in their backyard and so the lights will keep going off until they like move around and they'll come back on oscar sees michael while the lights are on and he thinks it's the homeowner in the mask in a mask. I guess it, I mean, I guess it is Halloween. And so maybe he thinks that the homeowner's like, it. I don't know. I don't know. It is Halloween a costume coming out to investigate like who the fuck's in his backyard. But he's on the ground like crying and stuff. And I know Michael is probably like, damn, this kid sucks. Okay. He's like, did you, did you get a girl who just couldn't have? I know the writers are probably like, this would be so funny because he's going to be like, oh, you're talking about Michael and Lori. Just like, right, it's not. And Michael's just like, fuck. Oh I my know. God, everybody fucking sucks. Michael's rolling his eyes. I'm rolling my eyes. I'm turning the movie off. Right, <laughs> I'm very much over it. It's hard to get through. So then the lights go off, right, because they're motion censored. And so they're triggered again. And we see that Michael has moved closer to Oscar. And so then this is a scene where you can hear his signature breathing. It's heavy as fuck. He's so close to Oscar. He's so close to Oscar. Oscar's not moving. No, Oscar's not moving. <laughs> He's not running. They they signify just how close Michael is by the fact that you can hear his breathing. So the motion lights go off again and it's like total darkness and all you can hear is Michael breathing and Oscar's still just fucking standing there, okay? The lights come back on and Michael just like takes a swipe at Oscar with the knife. And so Oscar, I guess this finally tunes him in that he's in a very dangerous fucking situation. So he tries to run away. And climb a fence. I would have went the other way. I would have gone the other way. I would have gone the other way. I feel like anything could have been better. You you struggled to get over the fence the first time. Okay? Like, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings here. But you weren't going to get over this fence quickly. And then he's wearing a cape. And it gets stuck to the bottom of the fence. And he can't take the two seconds that it would take to unhook himself. He is stuck just like screaming there and Michael stabs him in the back and then he ends up impaling him on the fence through his jaw, through the chin, like a through the chin, out out the mouth kind of impaling. Like a piercing. Yeah, but a deadly one. It's like... <laughs> so Allison runs back because Oscar was like wailing and as she's walking up, the motion sensor lights are off. But as she gets close, they pop on and she sees Oscar there dead. And Michael steps out. And so she sees him too. And Allison recognizes immediately that this is Michael Myers. She runs to these people's houses and she's screaming. And she's picked up by Deputy Hawkins and Dr. Sartain, who have been driving around. Dr. Sartain has been essentially lusting after Michael this whole time. 
But Hawkins is making it very clear that like when he finds Michael, he wants him dead. It's on site. On site. I want you to understand that it's on site. I want everybody in the car to understand there's no conversation. Right. Like, I don't want you to be shocked if when I see him, I, sh- I shoot him immediately. And Dr. Sartain's like, no, you know, like, I don't, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. And Deputy Hawkins is like, boy. Shut up, bitch. <laughs> He's like, no, I let him live 40 years ago. I will not make the same mistake. Because look at where we are now. No. So while all of this was happening, Lori got to Karen's house with the police. And so I guess because Lori has a police escort now, Karen has decided that she can finally take her seriously. And she's like, we need to go to a safe place. So they assume the safest place they could be is Lori's house and not three towns over. You know what I mean? Like, I just, like they just go to Lori's house. Because Lori's excited. I know, right? First of all, I think that she's probably thinking that Karen can probably hold her own, right? And then I think she's also like, I don't really care if Ray dies. So she's like, well, let's all go to my house so that me and Karen can kill this bitch. Because she's like, I'm sure he's going to come to my house. Let's go there, right? And she's like, if Ray has to die in the process, that's fine with me. Because Ray ass is too damn old to be with Karen anyway. Right. That's the real tea. We're talking about Michael being a predator. Ray is the predator in this film. Because if you think about it, when you friends with Tommy, that means that him and Tommy grew up together. So Tommy was about eight or nine or ten years old when he got babysat by Lori. Right. Karen was not born yet. So he's at... Because Lori was only 16, 17. 17. Yes. Think about it, y'all. So that means that at the least, he's 11 years older. She had a baby the very next year. He's at least 11 years older than her, which is not true. He he is a good 15. Right. He's at... I think think he's at the very least 15, 16 years older than her. Yeah. Years older than her. Right. Took advantage of that girl with her daddy and mommy issues. Right. Preyed upon her. It's really disgusting when you think and about it. And I wonder it. if the writers were like, oh, um, we didn't even think about that. Well, you should have. You were so busy trying to fucking make Lonnie Elam something. Make it fetch happen. Exactly. It doesn't make sense that a man that Lori would have been babysitting as a kid is now married to her daughter. So, yeah, that's our head canon. We're just like, she's a good 15, 20 years younger than him, and he is fucking gross. Right. He looks old as fuck next to her anyway. He does, he does look older than her. A lot. Right. In the movie, in canon, they cannot be the same age. Not at all. Like, he has to be substantially older, than, older her. than her. So, Karen and Ray arrive at Lori's house and they go down to her bomb shelter basement hidden under her kitchen island. And they do some of the smartest things that anybody in this film has done. And they arm themselves with guns to the teeth. So while driving around, Dr. Sartain and Allison, who's locked in the back of this cop car, she's in, she's in the back of Hawkins' cop car. And Hawkins, they all come across Michael, who's just like walking down the street, like super casually. Because he's like, what the fuck do I have to be afraid of? Right. He's like, I don't have no car. Shit. 
Right. No reason to run. And it's fall. The weather's nice. So, <laughs> so if Hawkins is anything, it's honest. Because just as promised, it's on site. He speeds up this SUV going like 4550. And he slams into Michael. Michael's kneecaps should be liquid at this point, right? Like he runs that SUV straight into this man. And then he jumps out and he's like, I'm going to shoot this bitch. And Dr. Sartain, he should have had him in the back of the cop car, in my opinion. Dr. Sartain jumps out and he's totally against it. And so he goes up and he does this total bitch move where he like fake checks Michael's pulse and he's like, ah, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) And he's expecting Hawkins to just accept that. And Hawkins is like, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking told you. I'll blow this motherfucker's head off. Right. He's like, no, we, we need to be sure. Hitting him is not enough. I'm going to fucking kill him. Right. So he pulls a, a not in my movie and he wants to shoot him in the head just to be safe that's just in case the second one just in case just in case yeah this is yeah i guess this is more like that because in for all intents and purposes michael should be dead he should be suffering the worst eternal bleeding this is finally where he speaks like my back i know he's probably like uh my neck my neck and my back i want a hundred and fifty thousand Zoo, he should be really hurt, but he's obviously not because it's Michael Myers. But Dr. Sartain comes up out of nowhere with this fucking knife, this little pen knife, and he stabs Hawkins repeatedly in like the neck area. And Allison is like, I'm fucked. Yeah, she's in the back and she knows, like, damn, this shit is wild at this point. I ain't got a phone. You don't have a phone, and that's your fault. Okay, because you should have pulled your phone out of that nacho cheese and gone to the bathroom and rinsed it off and gone home. But no, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to victim blame, but Allison should have made better decisions. Is she not Lori's granddaughter? I'm confused. So Michael obviously is, in fact, still alive. Dr. Sarantine's a fucking liar. And for some strange fucking reason, this is the weirdest, most nonsensical point in this entire movie to me. And I know that people are probably going to argue us down on this point. Dr. Sartain takes Michael's mask off and he puts it on himself and he stands up. And I know Allison has to be like, I am so fucked right now. You know what that was? That was the part of the movie. He was like, do you think I'm sexy? <laughs> Wait, would you fuck me? I, I fuck me. me. <laughs> and it's like, do, do, I do, do, do. And so I thought, I was like, I was like, that's, I was like, that's they call back to the sound of the lambs, y'all. He, he was like, feeling himself. He was probably tingling inside. It's just, it was just so ridiculous when I was watching this for the first time. And I know that fucking mess thing. Yes, because the think about it, it's like oh, it's very old it's 40 years old i'm I'm surprised the shit isn't dry rot at this point but then remember how wild he was living in the first one he was very dirty like he was like eating dogs and he was living in that old abandoned house he didn't brush his teeth then i doubt he brushes them now he probably had lice and he just like puts this mask on 
I don't like that. Do you think I'm sexy? Would you, <laughs> Would you fuck, fuck me? me? <laughs> <laughs> so that's Dr. Sartain 2018. The reiteration of Buffalo Bill. So he picks Michael's big ass up and drags him to the police car. And he puts him in the backseat. And this was so fucked up. Dr. Sartain really is like a fucking asshole. Because if I was Allison, I would have been like, wait, please. Just let me sit in the front. I'll sit in the front. I will do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you want. Just let me get in the front. He doesn't allow her to do that. He puts Michael in the back with her. I would have cried. I would have cried. I would have been fighting. I would have been kicking, screaming. As soon as I would have been at that door, when he opened that door, I would have been clawing fighting because she knows she knows firsthand you just saw what happened at oscar yeah right michael kills people straight up and then does he some fucking talk. like silly shit with fucking isla god he's like he's like if you can't find the blood if you can't find the blood from a young version store what would do <laughs> it's all, it's but for michael myself is- I will typically use <laughs> fresh blood. <laughs> From a version of the Midwest uh, his, portion of the United States. He has States. like a fucking cocktail in his hand. It's just, it's just he's doing so much. So the fall weather is perfect for <laughs> I would have been fighting for my life to not be put in the back of this fucking cow car with him. And she just like sits there. That would never be me. He, Dr. Sartain would have had to stab me too. Because I would have been like, let me out of this bitch. It would have been a fight. It would have been a fight. He would, and then he's already holding Michael. So I would have been like kicking him in the back, in the face, in the head. Like he, he has his hands full. Michael back had to hurt because Michael didn't fight that. He was just like, I know, hurt, man. Get me in this car. Shit. Put me in the car. Shit. He's probably like, damn, my fucking ankle is twisted. My knees are swollen. You know that shit. And he's old too. He's sixty-one years old. Right. Michael's sixty-one-year-old ass hip is probably broken. But he just lets Dr. Sartain load him into the back of this car. So Dr. Sartain takes the mask off and he throws it on the seat in the car between Allison and Mike. And then he gets in the car and he starts driving and he starts explaining this like a Scooby-Doo moment where he just like starts explaining his whole evil plan to Allison. And he like... Basically explains to her that, you know, all this time he's been studying Michael for 40 years and Michael has given him nothing. He's like, I really wanted to watch him kill in the wild, right? He uses that phrase a lot, like in the wild. And he was like, watching him kill this way would be the best way to understand pure evil. And he reveals that he is taking Michael to Laurie Strode's house to force a reunion between Michael and... And Lori, when he wakes up. And I'm like, when he wakes up. Does he know that Lori, that's Lori's granddaughter? I feel like he has to know because I feel like he would have let her go if it wasn't, right? Like, I feel like at some point with Hawkins, Hawkins probably had to have been like, this is Lori's granddaughter, right? We're going to take it to your grandmother. Right. So we know that Dr. Sartain set up this entire escape on the bus. That's why he was just like kind of sitting there. And I know that we talked about it before, but when they're reading the passenger list, it was all these like really low level offenders and then Michael Myers. And so I think that Dr. Sartain 
orchestrated all of this, right? He orchestrated moving Michael at all. Like, didn't we think that that it went all the way back to that? It was so much just like, he was like, okay, they're doing this, this move. This is my chance to set up the whole fiasco. Right. I think maybe they were already moving those low-level offenders because they didn't mm-hmm. need to be in Smith's Grove. And then he was like, okay, well, I'm going to orchestrate a move of Michael, too. It wasn't just that the government didn't want to pay to house Michael in this facility anymore. It's that Dr. Sartain set up the move, is like what we're assuming. So he, you know, lays all this out that he planned all the bus crash and everything. He didn't plan on getting shot, though. I'm sure he was shocked when that happened. I went blue as hell. He was so close to, like, he hit him in the shoulder. Yeah, he hit him right in the shoulder. Yeah. So Sartain comes up with this theory that Michael's hunt for Lori and this the need to be a predator and Lori's fear of becoming prey, this is what's keeping both of them alive. Right. So he's like, I'm going to force this reunion between the two. As he's leaving, just as like a dick move, he runs over Hawkins' body with the cop car. And I was like, that was a really shitty thing to do. You already stabbed him, but this is to drive home that Sartain's a piece of shit. So we cut to Lori's house and we have our favorite fodder cops. (laughs) They're sitting there having this really unimportant fucking dialogue about sandwiches we care about them not at all but every horror movie has to have some fodder cops right so dr sartain is heading there and allison knows things are getting kind of squirrely at this point so allison is really sensing how thirsty dr sartain is and she tells him that michael actually spoke to her and he just said one word and she's like i will tell you what he said but you just have to let me out So Dr. Sartain pulls over because he's like so thirsty to hear what this like one word is. And Michael like, bitch, what word? I know. What word I say? He's like, let me, I want to hear. He woke up. So he woke (laughs) up and he's like, he puts the mask on. And so this is where you notice the mask isn't sitting on the seat anymore. And she looks up and he's like wearing the mask. And he's looking at her like, yeah, bitch. What what I say? I'm dying to know as well. (laughs) Tell me. Like he hasn't spoken since, since 63. So he's like, so I just spoke to your random ass. Come on now. Yeah. Like, bitch, who is you? And so she's like, oh, fuck. And so Dr. Sartre's like trying to pry this information out of her. And she's like, who fucking cares what he said? He's right here. Dr. Sartain notices that Michael is awake and he starts like fangirl. And he has that like misguided Danny Trejo approach and thinking that like because Michael knows you he won't kill you but right now Michael is an animal in a cage right because he can't get out of this car he starts fucking kicking the the cage of this police car and he's like he's fucking Sartain up like he's kicking and slamming Sartain into the steering column of this car those knees were not as bad as we thought they were i know they his knee they should be fucking broken though the way he was hit by that car they should be broken but he's kicking this cage slamming dr sartain and dr sartain gets like kind of knocked out you know and so this is like setting up the seventh on-screen kill and michael gets out of the car the next shot that you get michael is dragging sartain out of the car onto the road and allison is like bye and she runs into the woods and that's the best thing she could have done he's just like yeah i understand 
He's like, that's I'm gonna fair. get you because you lied on me. I'm gonna find you. I'm gonna find you them. Right. But you, then we also have to remember he just also got hit by a car, like an SUV going 50 miles per hour. So he's like, I'm not gonna chase you yet, bitch, but I'll find you later. See, he like watched her run away, but he was like, let me get with this bitch real quick because he's like, he's like, you let that bitch hit me with this car. <laughs> 50 miles per hour. My back is twisted. <laughs> he tried to pull me out of my misery and you stopped him, you broke bitch. <laughs> he's probably like, you know his ankle is probably swollen. He's probably so pissed off. He's like, I need some effing sauce so bad. So, so this is like the seventh on-screen kill, right? Dr. Sartain looks up at him from the ground and Dr. Sartain, who lacks any form of like self-preservation, he just asks Michael to say something. Michael looks at him and then just stomps his face <laughs> until his head explodes like a fucking watermelon. That was so intense. It was very graphic. I hate stuff like this. And they do this. I feel like they always do this in Halloween movies somebody's gonna get like just like crushed or in some way so michael stomps him head explodes he's dead so the fodder cops at Lori's house they can see all of this commotion right they can see the cop lights because sartain was in hawkins cop car he had the lights glowing and so they're trying to figure out like what is what what's going on that something is amiss so they drive down there to check it out and they find Dr. Sartain's body and they don't notice because they're also not good cops because clearly somebody's just been murdered, right? They're not watching their backs or anything. Michael's right behind them. And so we don't see them die, but... Come on. Right. So as Ray is yo-yoing in Lori's house like a fucking idiot, we see the cop car pull up at her house so this is the fodder cop's car and so we as the audience know that they're probably dead so we're like oh fuck is this michael ray just like goes outside just it, the, the cop car's like all dark and shit they just had their like lights going and so he's been an idiot this entire movie so i'm not really surprised he's like hey what's what's going on and they're like not responding to him so Instead of getting an eerie feeling, pulling out the gun, getting nervous, doing anything, he just keeps approaching the car. So he walks up to the car like a dummy, opens the door, and we find the two fodder cops, and they're dead, obviously. So one has his like throat slit, and he has... Did he have a knife in his head, or am I imagining that? I can't remember. I can't remember either. So one is like has a... His throat slit, and the other fodder cop has been decapitated, and he's like hollowed out. Yeah, he like hollowed out his head, like scooped. Do you know how long this would have taken? To Michael just does shit. He's like, I have time. He's like, I, I know that I'm here and I have stuff to do, but I'm just gonna take the time for me, for myself. It's Halloween. I haven't done one jack o' lantern. I think it's time for my stuff. It's such a crazy thing to think about, right? So he hollows out this cop's head and he sticks a flashlight in it. So it looks like a jack-o'-lantern. So it's like one cop's holding the other cop's jack-o'-lantern head. 
And Ray is like, oh, fuck, I'm fucked. But before he has time to like really react, this is where we get the eighth on screen kill. It's Ray because Ray doesn't move fast enough for my liking. Michael just comes up behind him and he chokes him with some wind chimes, I guess, that he took off of Lori's house. <laughs> and he like breaks his hyoid bone. And before Ray dies, he gets off a shot, which is lucky. It's like the most helpful thing he's done in the entire movie because that alerts Lori to the fact that something is going on. And so she runs downstairs and she finds her goddamn door <laughs> open because Ray just left it open like a total fuck. I know she was mad. Had he not already been killed, she would have shot him because she was pissed and so she sees michael out there the house is a fortress the house of fortress fortress for you not to have to go outside why did you go outside why did you do that you could have called and been like what's going there was absolutely no reason what was the reason there was no reason for you to go what was the reason what was the the reason reason? (laughs) what was the reason bitch so She sees Michael, locks her doors, and she's like, Karen, this is it, girl. Get in the fucking bomb shelter. So Karen runs into the basement. Is this the start of Act 3? You think Ray's death is the end of Act 2, and now we're going into a quick Act 3? Yes. I think so. Because I was going to say, like, maybe it's Sartain's death that signals the end of Act 2. I would say actually because now it's Michael and Lori at her house. Right. Right. And it's also where I put, so I have in my notes, this is really where the movie starts to get irritating. I think. Starts. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's tough, right? Because Lori has been preparing for this moment for 40 years. She does nothing right. And I hate it. I hate it because I like Laurie Strode so much. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't like that they played my girl like this. It's giving very much like the way they shit on um, Gail Weathers in Scream 4. I just feel like don't shit on beloved characters because Laurie has been preparing all this time. She's so smart. She's so prepared. She just starts doing dumb shit. And every bad thing that happens to Lori after this, I can only blame Lori for not doing the right things. So here we go. Let's run through Act 3, okay? First things first. She has a door with glass panels. (laughs) Lori, why do you have a door (laughs) with glass panels? And it's not just like little squares of glass where she could see out. And this is... I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt because I do think that she also has a gate, but I think she didn't have time to close the gate because Ray's stupid ass left it open. So all she had time to do was close this door. Okay. I try, I'm trying to get a, give her the benefit of the doubt because realistically with all the preparations that you have done in this house, it does not make sense that you would have this she still has the 1978 door that she had on her house when she was growing up. This old ass wooden ornate door with like this these long ass glass panes. That that doesn't make sense. But additionally, what doesn't make sense? Oh my god. This is how he would get into your house, right? You know he's outside. This is the entry and exit point. She leans her back 
against this door. Why would you do that? She's leaning against the door. You know that you're like this gate that you have on the outside isn't locked. So Michael, of course, just like bursts his hand through the glass panes of the front door. And he grabs her by her face. <laughs> and it's just like, it's like, Lori, just go sit on the stairs. Just sit on the stairs and wait. Just wait. Like, she's too... Eager. Yes. She's too eager. She's too eager to show that she's a bad bitch. Right. And you're not being smart. You know how to shoot. You've prepared yourself. You have guns, knives, the electronic gates and all these things. You've done all this preparation, but you're too antsy to like get it started instead of being calculated and smart. Like just sit there, stand there, wait for him to make his move because he, Michael is smart, right? Like Michael doesn't do, and we're going to see that in a minute. Michael does practice self-preservation. You know what I mean? Even earlier when he got shot, when Lori hit him, he was like, oh, fuck. Let me let me back up for a minute. He didn't just keep approaching her like a fucking idiot for her to just keep shooting him. You know what I mean? So he is trying to not die. He was hiding. He was hiding in that backyard. Right. Because he got shot. And so now he knows she's looking for me and she has the upper hand in this moment because she has a gun. And so let me just back up. So he's ragdolling Lori and she's able to raise her shotgun and Michael grabs it, but she is she is able to pull the trigger and she blows off his fingers and he lets her go. And this is the only time in these movies I was like, I know that shit had to hurt because Michael goes like, ah, <laughs> I was like, damn, that was hurt bad because he just got ran over by an SUV and made <laughs> zero sound. But she blew his fucking fingers off. He was like, ah, <laughs> now he's pissed, right? Lori goes into the basement. She moves her kitchen island, which is on an electronic hinge. It comes over. She walks down. She closes it. At this point, it's her and Karen. They're in this bomb shelter basement. Michael enters the house, and he doesn't know where they are. Right. For some reason, this is not smart. Lori decides to just start shooting through the floor. She's trying to hit Michael, and she's shooting through the floor. Well, now... I get it, Laura, you really want to kill him. I get that. That is totally understandable. But not only have you now revealed your location, so he knows now that there is a floor under this, right? There must be a basement level. Now he's just like, how do I get to it? Right. You've exposed your location, but you've also exposed Karen's location, right? So are you just hoping that she remembers everything that you taught her? when she was 12 years old and that she can survive this? Or do you really trust that you can kill him before he gets to her? Well, it was just poor. It was just poor. It was poor, poor, plan, but poor writing because she, there was no reason. He was going to just look around the house. And he may not have found her. And Ray, Ray was dead. So you had no reason. So she shoots. She does not hit him. She opens the island and she leaves the safety of the basement. But she's she, she's exposed Karen's location. Michael's in the house. You have no idea where he is. Now you've opened this island and now he's aware that you are still in the house. You're going somewhere. I know it's a basement level. He can probably hear that thing moving. It's just, it, it was poor writing, in my opinion. This was not a good face-off. It was very poor writing. And not in your opinion. It's just very poor writing. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just it's it's four. So now Lori is like, I'm gonna go hunting for Michael, and I don't understand why she went to the basement anyway. You could have not. You blew off his hand. Now you take take a minute to compose yourself, stand at that door, and wait for him to come. And you could have blown him away. And shoot him fucking head off. Right. But you didn't. So now Lori is hunting for Michael with this fucking elephant gun. It's The <laughs> gun is too big. Lori, I know that you trust in your ability. I get that. I know that you don't want to take any chances and you want to shoot him with an elephant gun because you want him to go down. I get that. But the shotgun that you had was effective and it was small. It was lightweight. That's what she was like. This is tactical. You know, like you want to be able to move. This gun is so large that I'm like, Michael's going to easily take this bitch from you. So Lori is checking room by room for Michael. And this is smart. Every time she goes in a room, she checks it, she clears it. She drops this electronic cage that she has at the door of like every room because you don't want somebody to then be able to get in those rooms and get behind you. Right. So she finally gets to a room and it has this blood trail and there's some mannequins in it. And we're like, okay, Michael must be in this room. Right. And I hate this because it's another, like, just a, it's silly. One of the mannequins is pointing towards the closet. And I think that Michael did that. And I hate that he did that. Because at this point, you've been hit. Your spleen is liquefied because you've been <laughs> hit by a car. Your fingers have been blown off. Don't do stuff like this. Like, this is like silly stuff. You know what I mean? Right. So she follows the mannequin's point, like the finger pointing to the closet. She opens it and she finds Ray's body in the closet. And this was, I think, a callback to Linda, the way that she found Linda's body in the closet, right? In the first one, Linda's body's like folded up in the closet and Ray's body is also like folded up in the closet. Oh, why though? There's no reason why he would have done that. And I don't also don't know when he would have done that, right? Like, I don't know when he would have just been like, oh, well, let me go out and get his body and bring it inside. Because she, know, she knows he's dead, so it's not like this is some big reveal right. for her. When, when it could have just been a reveal for Allison also. Right. But it also isn't like, it's not like she opens it, she sees Ray's body, and she's like, it scares her and then she's thrown off and then he attacks her. It doesn't even happen that way. She sees Ray's body. She really feels nothing. It's like she sees Ray's body. It might as well have been a stuffed animal. Cause she's just like, okay, well that's odd. She also refuses to turn on any lights in the house. So she's searching the rooms with a flashlight. For dramatic purposes. For, for us as the audience, because had she turned on, had this been smart Lori, who's been preparing for this for 40 years, she would have turned on every light in the house and every floodlight that she has around the house, right? Don't give him any shadows to hide in, but she doesn't. So Michael's hiding behind some mannequins and he pops out and he takes the gun from her. <laughs> like... <laughs> Easy. He easily takes this elephant gun from her by just grabbing the barrel of it. She tries to stab him, but he stabs her. Lori is now wounded. Fuck. So (laughs) 
she like bites his fucked up hand that we already know is hurting him and he's that pissed him off so bad he just takes this bitch and throws her over the balcony (laughs) he like slams her she falls onto the ground outside at this point we hear and michael hears karen hears Allison is who's been running through the woods for the past 20 minutes of this movie. Over the hills and through the woods. To grandmother's house we go. go. (laughs) She is like screaming and then says, Mom! Grandmother? Yeah, oh yeah, that's what it is. Grandmother? (laughs) Grandmother! And this is when, this is, I I feel like this would have been a more realistic reason to have to go out the come out of the bunker, bunker yes because they've been like one of us has to go and get her because she's go- he's in the house and she's and she doesn't know going to get killed and right. she's going to get killed and it would have been a nice moment for Lori to you know karen is still very resentful f- to her she wasn't really there, there for karen growing up but she could have been like let me do this let me I, I'm going to go save her. You know what I mean? Like, let me do this. And I think that that would have been a good little bonding moment for them because they don't get that, right? Right. They try to do that scene where, like, they hug, but it's, it's stupid. It didn't, it didn't hit like they thought it would. This would have been better. This would have been it better. Been, it would have been a life or death choice. Right. The stakes are high. And, and she could have been like, no, I wasn't there for you growing up, but let me be there for you now. Let me go get Allison. And then, you know, if I die in the process, that's one thing. I think it would have, it would have helped more weight. So everybody hears Allison screaming outside like a fucking maniac, even though she knows that Michael is out here and you don't want to, you shouldn't want to give him your position. But Michael looks away. And then when he looks back, this is a callback to the first one as well, where Lori landed on the ground. He looks back and she's gone. So I know he was probably like, (sighs) this bitch. bitch." (laughs) Right? He's like, he's just trying to get somewhere and put some icy hot on his back and like a bandage on his hand. Soak it some Epsom salt. He like, I need to get some Epsom salt. I need to get some green <laughs> alcohol immediately. Put <laughs> a wicked witch hazel. I know. He like, is going God. through it. Stop. Some Vicks vapor rub just to add a little razzle dazzle to it. Because I know he is. I know he is fucked up. He said, he said, ow. He was the most smoking 60 fucking years. He's like, vocal cords and spider webs on him. But she shot him in the head. And he was like, ah. And then he's throwing his sword. He needs a fucking lozenge. It's just like a lot going on. And then seeing him at fucking Walgreens with a big man. Stop, just with a fucking first aid kit under one arm. And like the recall in his hand. That's like in the deleted scenes. So Allison is finally arriving to the house, right? And she's like mm-hmm ignoring all this carnage outside and just fucking screaming so karen opens up the kitchen island to get allison to bring her in but at this point it's like fuck the island (laughs) yeah the island means nothing because y'all have opened it 67 times since michael has been here and i'm sure that he's seen it move i'm sure he's heard it move 
he michael starts to look for them and he like immediately goes to this fucking island because he's like these bitches are coming from in and out of somewhere he starts to pry that bitch off the fucking hinges and he does right he rips that shit off the hinges and karen does the smartest thing she's done in this entire movie and she arms herself with her old rifle from when she was a kid and she does this little ruse and i thought it was smart on her part she does this thing where she's like crying you know she has the gun she's holding it up they're in the basement now michael is above them but he's not at the basement opening she knows that he has to be somewhere up there though right he's waiting right she has the gun trained on the opening and so she's calling out for her mom and she's like, I, I can't do this. She's like, Mom, please help me. I can't do this. And so Michael, sensing this weakness, he's like, I can I smell a bitch in here. <laughs> he reveals himself. <laughs> he reveals himself. And she shoots him, like, in his fucking jaw. Fucks his shit up. I know he was probably like, fuck. And so Lori is in the shadows behind him. And she says, Happy Halloween, Michael. <laughs> I'm like, I hate this. This is the guy shit I hate because they do that a lot in these three movies. It's like, why would she say that? Why would she say that? If we're being real, why did you say that? Why did you say that? <laughs> she says, Happy Halloween, Michael. And she just starts to stab him. But Michael's quick, right? Michael's very. Very quick and very efficient. Yes. He cold cocks her with a fireplace poker that he picked up. He's like, this bitch have a lot of weapons just lying around. He's like, this is this is great. But Lori isn't a bitch, right? And she starts wailing on him with this cast iron frying pan. I know that shit hurt. That shit hurt. She's knocking him all up and down he falls down the stairs into the basement you know he already hurt his back when he got hit by that car <laughs> his hands all fucked up i know at this point he's seething he's like, like i want these bitches that's dead. the best you got that's the best you got <laughs> so he's falling down into the basement and karen and allison run up just as michael this is another callback to the first one he sits like bolt upright he's not a balance yourself on your elbows first and get up kind of guy he's just up so he grabs Karen by the ankle and Allison just starts fucking stabbing him and they, they're able to get out of the basement and it's revealed that this basement is it's not just a bunker, but it is also a trap and they're able to close these spikes that close it off. So it's like one big cage that he's in. And the whole house is rigged with gas that they fill up and they're able to set the basement on fire. And they're just like going to let this whole house burn. And it's on fire and Michael's just fucking standing there watching them. He's just <laughs> looking at her like, bitch, when I give my hands on you. Because it's like, it's like all this fuck at the edge. It's like, just shoot me in the head, bitch. Right, you're going to burn down your house? How, how, how fucking insane is that? It's very insane. The whole house is going up in flames. They leave. They're running away. And as it's burning, they do give you one final shot of the basement on fire, but you don't see Michael anywhere. So that's kind of like a, uh-oh, kind of moment. 
as they're leaving, a passerby is coming and they flag him down and they get in the back of his truck and they escape. And so then we get the end credits that play with the play one, the original score, because John Carpenter did the score for this too. In a post credit scenes for the movie, though, they just have Michael breathing. And so it's that's to kind of give you a heads up. Michael did not, in fact, die in this movie. And uh, that's how it ends. And then the second movie is just going to pick up immediately at this point. So <laughs> before we start going again, let's just do the, the little fun little facts. So the kill count on this movie, right? So there's eight on-screen kills. 17 total kills, yeah, including the off-screens. And I say 17 and not 18 because, spoiler alert, Hawkins doesn't actually die, although he fucking should have because... Shit. (laughs) Right. So the Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie is 79% critic and 72% audience, which is very high. You know, as far as horror movies go, um, the IMDb is a 6.5 out of 10 with 163,000 reviews. And I think that's fair. I would give yeah. it a six. So just some fun little facts. So Nick Castle is the first Michael Myers like shape in the 1978 John Carpenter's original movie. And he actually makes in a, a cameo appearance as Michael in this movie. Um, so the Michaels in this movie are Nick Castle and James Jude Courtney, who is Michael for the majority. But anytime you like see Michael in any kind of close proximity with Laurie, it is Nick Castle. He is also in the other two movies as well. Anytime you hear Michael's breathing, that signature heavy breathing, he is providing that vocal work and they're adding it in post-production. Yeah, so this movie grossed $250 million at the box office. It is the highest grossing slasher film in unadjusted dollars. And it actually broke a record that Scream had previously set in 1996. And the budget for this movie was only $10 million. So they really made bank. So Carpenter agreed to return to this movie for the 2018 film. And he was an executive producer. And he also co-wrote the new soundtrack and the new score, which was just basically the original score, but with a little razzle-dazzle on it. And he told, I know we have a lot of feelings about this, But he told Entertainment Weekly that this Halloween, in his opinion, is the best one in the entire franchise since his original film. So notoriously, John Carpenter did not like Rob Zombie's Halloween movies. He was like pretty nasty about that. So he said about Rob Zombie's versions in a quote, I thought that he took away the mystique of the story by explaining too much about the guy. I don't care about that. It's supposed to be a force of nature. He's supposed to be almost supernatural. And he was too big. It wasn't normal. And so he had all these like really poor feelings about every other remake that he was not involved in, every other sequel. And so that is why he feels so strongly about this one. But with that being said... 
what would you say? Hit or miss, it is time to make a decision either way. Oh, that's easy. This is a total miss. I don't like this movie. <laughs> At all. Okay. Not a fan. I mean, there 28% of people who, who, didn't, <laughs> who didn't like it. It's tough because I would say it is also a miss for me. And I feel confident in calling it a miss because I saw it that w- the one time when it came out. And then the only other time I've seen it is when we had to watch it for this podcast and I had to take notes on it. And it was very difficult for me to get through. And after I was done watching it, I was like, I'm never going to watch that movie again. <laughs> um. So yeah, I just don't like it. Like it. I don't like it. I don't feel that it's something that is worth watching. If you've seen the other Halloweens and you've seen, you've seen this one, it's nothing really new or anything added. And I think I've realized, like, watching movies, I don't like... I'd rather something be kind of out out there and unique and different and maybe not so good than for this to be, like, boring and predictable. And this movie is boring. And it's boring because it's just... A, it's just... It's so much fan service. There's so much callback that it's just it's it's boring, and it's we've seen it before. And it's like you just get these people come in and they're like so obsessed. They're just like you know this is the sequel with John Carpenter. He does this and, and he's back. He didn't like that. He didn't like that they're brother and sister, so he changed it and made it better. And it's like okay, let's put our thinking caps on immediately. Put your thinking cap on right, right. the hell now. Okay, right. unless you're an old person and you saw the original movie in like 78, 79, 80 or, 80, or the beginning of 81, all you know is Laurie and Michael are brother and sister. That is the lore. It's not like, okay, we made all these movies. And you know what? In the sixth when they found out this brother and sister, that shit was weird. It wasn't found out in the sixth movie or the fifth movie or the fourth movie or the third movie. It was in the very next one. So mm-hmm. then he wrote. So um that he came he up came with, up he came, with that. he himself came up with the idea that they were siblings. And he can say whatever he wants. Oh, I was drunk. Oh, I didn't know I did. oh I I could I had Ross Block. But you created that. And we can talk about, oh well, so, you know, well, if he didn't like it, well, that's the lore, and that's what people know. And that didn't ruin the movies. And when you talk about well, this is the only this is the best sequel or whatnot. If it wasn't for a Halloween 4, which I think is so fucking boring. I don't ever watch that one. I skipped that bitch hard. I think he he needed to do something because he didn't want the franchise to die. I'm not John Carpenter. What's his name? Mustafa? Mustafa Khan. Yeah. If it wasn't for Halloween 4, if it wasn't for him making that movie and bringing Michael back, there would be no franchise. It was dead in the water after 3. And I fucked with 3 heavy. You know how much I love 3. Nobody liked 3. At the time. I know. I watch that bitch all the time. I know. But I don't know if a lot of people know, John Carpenter did not want to make a franchise that revolved around Michael, Michael Myers. Myers. Right? He wanted to make a, a Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Anthology. Like, he wanted each movie to have it to be different just set around that holiday. holiday. Which is a good, it's a good idea. Which was ahead of his time. It's ahead of its time. It was. But the point is, when I'm making a point, is that you are coming in on the rigid and the spoils of someone else. And yes, it was your IP, 
but you sold it. You sold it. And you left. And they came back and was like, well, we're going to make it be something. And it is, but it is because you kept making them same fucking movies. And then there's people who are like, oh, well, Jamie Lee Curtis, and they make everything about Laurie Strode. But if it wasn't for Jamie Lee Curtis coming back and doing Halloween 7, that shit would have been directed video. Right. Because we fucked with Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes. It's that star power. So it's like, yeah, John Crawford created it, but... Y'all kind of putting too much in his bag because really everybody in some in some level play a part in the success. That's what my I agree. that's my issue. It's just like you come in, you're like, oh, well, only the movies that I make, I create are the best ones. But then on the flip of that, you come in and this movie is just a bunch of shit that we already saw. Right. So it's like, yes, I'm sure that you do feel like that because it's taking all it's it's essentially taking all the highlights highlights from all these other movies and putting it in one one movie and i feel like and i know that we've talked about this before my favorite halloween is halloween h2o this movie feels like halloween h2o but you're like okay what if we don't make them siblings and she just she didn't become like a boarding school teacher other than that isn't it very very similar to that but like i feel like not even as well done it's not and it's the same and it's just this, it's just the same shit you already saw and like to me if you were trying to do something and make it a little razzle-dazzle pizzazzling stole, what you should have did was you should have switched laurie and karen's personalities because we already saw a traumatized laurie I don't like seeing the same shit over and over again. Well, you're supposed to have Loki never... Like, you're just supposed to pretend like that yeah. never happened. Like, we never saw a traumatized Lori. But, but that's not how... This ain't the, this ain't the Men in Black franchise, all right? <laughs> we don't get the flash and say we never saw. We saw this shit already. Because what would have been cool would have been, in my opinion... Lori would have been like, okay, I just put that behind me. I pretend that didn't happen. And I just moved on with my life. And Karen because people know that she's Lori's daughter became obsessed with Michael. And because she was obsessed with Michael, they, they switched it. So then when Michael comes back, Karen is his real prepared person, but she still falls because Lori is not just pre- not prepared, but she's a final girl and because she's a true final girl. She lives on her wit. Right. That to me would have been more interesting. I really just don't like this notion that, Everything we've done before is trash. Everything that I wasn't involved in is is whatever. And now we're back and I like this and I'm doing it. You know, I don't I don't like shit like that. I just don't. I don't respect that. I don't like when you you shit on something because it wasn't what you did. Like fuck you. Right. And Rob Zombie and they like we mentioned it like very briefly, but they had a beef, basically, like a falling out because Rob Zombie says that when he approached John Carpenter and he told him that he was going to do a remake of his movies, he said that John Carpenter was very cold towards him. Now, John Carpenter said he's a son of a bitch. (laughs) He said that's not true. He was like, I wasn't very cold to him. I told him to make it his own. And I don't know who to believe in, in that situation, but I would not be surprised if John Carpenter was cold to him. Right. I feel like John Carpenter is so pissy about the sequels of this movie. You can't just say that none of these sequels, none of the remakes are without merit. 
and you recreating shit that like I mean to really just recreate Halloween H2O is just so mind boggling. Right. That's so mind boggling. But they did that. They were like, you know what would be good? If we just straight up remake this movie. Right. Let's have a traumatized Lori in another face off with her brother. But wait, John Carpenter doesn't want it to be her brother. So let's take that out. So he likes us. And then we'll just like make these movies. I mean, go see it. (laughs) It's not one that I like Ruth. I watched it in the movie theater and I didn't even think about it ever again until we did this episode and we watched it. Right. And I think that because John Carpenter is involved and we got Jamie Lee Curtis back. I find that a lot of people just are like scared to go against the grain and be like, it's actually not good. I wasn't very impressed. You know, there's some things that I like about it. There are some kills that I like, but it's just like overall as a movie, it's just, I just, I can't. It's not something that I would want to revisit. Right. So that's that. Halloween 2018. We're done. <laughs> On Halloween 2023. Oh, uh, yeah. Isn't it nice? Yeah. Well, happy Halloween, everybody. Thank you for listening to this one. Sorry that our Halloween episode was one that we just took the time of shit all over. Well, it's Halloween, so everyone needs one good scare. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.